Welcome to Short Course, episode 17, for May 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Ben Barry. Every time I record an episode, usually like the day, the week after, I realize I forgot something. I had something I wanted to mention, and I didn't. I forgot. So this is my chance to catch up on a couple of those things, update a couple episodes that we've talked about in the past, and get to a couple mini topics that I've had written on my list as topics to talk about, but I just don't justify a full episode. Just some quick hits that I think might be interesting. So first thing, last week, the Hot Summer Matches episode, a couple things that I meant to mention that I didn't. The first one, talking about ProGrip, is yes, I use ProGrip even in dry fire. And the main reason for that is you want your practice to be as consistent with matches as it can be. Now, it actually happens that I tend to need ProGrip in dry fire as well, just because I don't run the AC at my house very much. And once you start moving around and, and getting the gun going, my hands actually sweat as though it were at a match during the summer. But even during the winter, I'll usually put a little bit on just to get that sort of dry pro grip tackiness, just, just to be consistent and, and to get 100% of the grip that I'm putting into my left hand showing up on the gun and get used to that feeling and have my left arm get you know a little bit sore from gripping the gun that hard for, for a good practice session. The second thing that, I don't know, maybe this is obvious. It took me a couple of years before I realized this, but um, as a dude, Buy some good underwear. The, the I, I have some of the Under Armour. It's like technical underwear. It's the boxer brief stuff. They're like $17 a pair and worth every penny. Just do it. It's worth it. You, you, don't, you never end up itchy the day after. Uh, you're not grabbing your crotch all day. Money well spent. Third thing, and this kind of relates to the jerky, is something I do at cold match or at, at warm matches is I do make cold brew coffee. And if you look online, there are all kinds of fancy contraptions for making cold brew coffee, and you don't need any of those. Uh, All you really need for cold brew coffee is a decent mesh filter to filter out the grounds. Because to actually make cold brew coffee, all you need is relatively coarsely ground coffee. Uh, I use the same grind setting I use to make my French press coffee. I I don't have any experience with using pre-ground coffee. I would imagine the same principle would work. Uh, But you need a filter appropriate to the size of the coffee grinds that you're using. So for me, I normally brew in a French press, and I use the same grind size when I make cold brew. If you do cold brew with pre-ground coffee, use your paper filter, see how it goes, let me know. But literally all you need to do is grind up a bunch of coffee or use whatever pre-ground you have. Mix it in with the water. I use room temperature water, and then put it in the fridge overnight. You're going to want at least eight hours, probably, to let it cool. I, I'm not a fan of these these systems that brew into some ice and then water it down. I don't, I don't want watered-down coffee. I want cold coffee that's got a lot of caffeine in it. So when I'm drinking it on the range, it's not heating me up, but it is getting me energized. Yeah, basic idea is you use any container. I, I literally just use a plastic jug these days, although if you have a glass French press... You can just brew it in there, put it in the in the fridge overnight so it'll be cold. In the morning, just filter out the coffee grounds and you've got tasty cold coffee. You don't need any of these fancy mechanisms. Whatever you use to, to brew coffee right now, you, you can use to make cold brew. And like I said, the nice thing is it keeps you cold on the range. And it's for me, I, I so I'm like I said on that episode, I try to avoid sugar. I also tend to avoid artificial sweeteners as much as I can. You'll see me on the range now and again drinking a white monster, and usually that's just when I need to pick me up after stage four or five, you know, to, to get through the rest of the match. But as a rule, I, I like to um, just have 
black coffee. And cold brew coffee, I will say, is very forgiving about crappy beans. Like you don't need great co- great, great quality beans uh, to make decent cold brew coffee, at least with this method where you're, you're just literally putting ground up coffee in water and then refrigerating it overnight and filtering it in the morning. You won't get great coffee this way, but you'll get decent coffee from almost any beans and it does the job of getting you caffeinated and keeping you cool. So those are the three items from last week's episode about hot summer matches. Something that I bugged me that I forgot to mention in episode number 11 about peak is the idea of practicing at the edge of your comfort zone. And this is something they, they don't, they don't have like a whole chapter about it in the book or anything, but they hint at it a couple times. And I, I think it's actually one of the most useful takeaways for me of the book is the idea that you will make the most gains in practice when you are just beyond the limit of your current ability. And this is important because especially in shooting, I think it is tempting to say, well, I'm just going to go as fast as a grandmaster and figure everything out. And, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll work it out. And maybe that, that works for some of you, but that, 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 that's never worked for me. The, the, what is, what I've found to be effective is you want to get a good consistent baseline and then slowly work up from there. Now, not slowly as in years, but incrementally keep dropping the part times and keep improving. You know, if you're just getting started in the sport, you don't want to say, well, I need a one second draw. So I'm going to set the, the part timer at, you know, one second and then just go fast until I figure it out. I, I, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think you can just make that, that big leap. So it's important in practice to find your comfort zone and then push just past it. Set up challenges that are just harder than you can reliably conquer today. You know, you, you want to be always pushing that limit, but you want to be at that limit. You know, you don't want to get intimidated into thinking, well, the harder I push, the more I'll gain. Because I I think there definitely, it's not, I think there definitely is a diminishing returns point where the difficulty is so high that you're not benefiting from the practice. And a good comparison that I use for this is is thinking about weightlifters, where if you want to have a 300 pound deadlift, you know, it's, it's not productive to just go out and try and pick up a 300 pound barbell the first day. Like it's not going to work. And you're, you're never, you might get it a couple inches off the ground, but you're more likely to hurt yourself than, than to actually make progress. And so, you know, just like a weightlifter, go out, find what you can lift today and tomorrow lift a little bit heavier. And the day after that, lift a little bit heavier and keep working in that zone. And what you'll find is you'll have a, a, a big chunk of beginner gains. So, you know, the first week or two that you start dry firing, things will just be clicking right and left. You'll be making huge improvements and then it'll start to peter out, but you will consistently keep getting better as long as you keep yourself in that zone where you're not complacent. You're not trying to hit part times that you can hit too reliably, but you're also not trying to hit part times that are a, you know, one out of 10 freak occurrence for you by, by calibrating into that right zone. That's how you keep reliably getting better. And I think that's a that's something important that they they kind of talk about in the book, but I think that's that's something useful to remember. Something else I wanted to update from episode 13, talking about my origin story. I was actually going through my notes recently and I was reminded that one of the things about the Steve Anderson class in 2014 that that really turned me around and got me started, you know, that, that made it that that pivotal point that I talk about in the episode is it it really hammered home. Steve really hammered home the importance of having a schedule. 
it doesn't have to be someone else's schedule. It doesn't have to be a grandmaster's schedule. If you want to be a grandmaster, you should work your way up to a grandmaster's schedule. But wherever you are, you need to pick a schedule and then stick to it. And so, you know, the, the, the common one that, that I like to talk about is right after that class, my schedule was I'm going to dry fire three days out of the week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, three of those days I'm going to dry fire. And so I could either knock them all out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if I knew I was going to be out with friends, you know, towards the weekend. If I had some stuff come up early in the week, I could catch up later on in the week and do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But that was my schedule. It gave me flexibility to work around life, but I had that schedule and it was non-negotiable and I met it every time and it was very realistic. And so I could actually reliably hit it. I, I never was like, ah, oh, yeah, there's no chance of that happening. And then over time, once I reliably was on that schedule, I've ratcheted it up and not just changed how often, but also how long each, each practice session is. So, you know, if you don't have a dry fire session or a dry fire schedule right now, three times a week, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. Just put something down, some baseline and start reliably achieving that baseline, then start increasing the baseline. But just saying, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, GMs practice every day. So I want to practice every day. Well, if you practice once a week right now, that that's not realistic. It's, it's not productive. And so when I think back on that turning point in my shooting career, that's a big piece of it was the importance of a schedule and having a, an achievable schedule and then sticking to it. And, and Steve, hammers that home a lot. As I record this, it's the end of May, and we should be starting to see some of the new production gear changes coming into effect. It's not entirely clear to me exactly what date the rules change was published, but it should be it should have been more than than 90 days now. And so the the new production rules should be in effect. We should start seeing aftermarket triggers, aftermarket safeties, aftermarket mag releases and all that stuff on production guns. And I'm, I'm excited to see what's coming. I, I still think these rule changes are going to be good for the division. I don't think any of the parts that are now allowed are any kind of significant competitive advantage. So I don't think it hurts the fairness of the sport or the, the division in any way. But I think it lets people tinker with their guns more, which let's be honest, most guys like to do. It lets people, if they legitimately need to make the gun fit them better, whether it's having a flat trigger or a low profile safety or, you know, something like that, it lets them do that. So I think production is going to continue to grow. I think this is going to make production a much more appealing division. I don't think this in any way debases the vision of production. To me, production is still the moderate capacity, nine millimeter inexpensive gun division. I mean, you can still buy a pair of shadow twos for less than a single limited gun, unless you want to, you know, risk it on some of the like $1,500 sketchy Filipino limited guns, which I've seen people around here risk it. And, and mostly they've gotten burned. So, you know, I, I wouldn't come in any lower than like an STI edge and that's going to be a $2,000, $2,200 gun. So you can buy, you can still buy two shadow twos, which is like supposed to be the end of production division because it's such a race gun from the factory. Like you can still buy two of those for the price of one limited gun your ammo cost is going to be lowest of any division in the sport and you can just go shoot and you don't have to do much to the guns. You can do the same thing with a stock too. If you want, you can now get a two pound trigger in your Glock 34. You still can't mill front cocking serrations under something that doesn't already have it, which I think, I don't know. I, I think that's a little silly. Um, 
every every worthwhile gun should have front cocking serrations in my opinion but you know buy a ppq or a stock two or you know find find one that has them but other than that you know i I think the division is just going to keep getting bigger and better i don't think this i don't think this hurts the division at all and i I think it's just going to cause it to keep growing so I will say, though, USPSA needs to print a new edition of the rulebook. The old one is, was printed in January 2014, so it's almost four and a half years old now. There have been a lot of changes, in particular, some of these appendix changes around you know, what is and isn't allowed in production division anymore, but a lot of clarifications have been issued. They, they should roll those up and, and put out a new, a new rulebook. It's just you know one of the, the, the business items of, of running the sport, but it should happen. All right, so that's all the errata. Uh, a couple sort of quick hit topics here that I never could find a way to sort of fit them into a, a larger topic, but I think they're still worth talking about. The first thing is the upside and downside of how flat socially the sport is. So one of the things that I feel like we talk about a lot in the sport is the fact that you could shoot your first match with somebody who is a national level competitor. Like you could just stumble into a match and have a guy in your squad who's been top 16 at nationals. Maybe he's won a couple of nationals or is it at least, you know, you could easily be have a grandmaster on your squad the first time out and, you know, be getting coached by someone like that. That is cool, but it has a downside. And the downside is I think the sport has less of an on-ramp than it should. I think the fact that there isn't a better place for beginners to start than the same matches that national past national champions or you know nationally competitive guys that that that's the place that new shooters end up starting i i think it could be better and it's not that i mind having new shooters on my squad it's just i don't know that it's the best experience for them when you're coming out and you want to shoot a uspsa match in your first match first of all the stages are pretty complex. They're long 32 round stages. A lot of them, especially in USPSA, we tend to have a lot of long stages and that's, that's tough for a first timer. The safety rules are pretty unforgiving. They're pretty, they can be pretty unintuitive the first time you might say, you know, there, I've seen a lot of, you know, first match DQs just from, you know, basic 180 or pulling the gun out before make ready type stuff. You know, there, there could be a, a better on-ramp than a, a match that is challenging to national level competitors. You know, I, I think I think the sport could use something like that. It doesn't have it right. You once upon a time, IDPA I think was more of that. I don't know if that's sort of waning as IDPA has has kind of gone off the deep end in the last couple of years, but in certain parts of the country it's probably probably still the case. Uh, this also kind of harkens back to episode number eight, the value of outlaw matches, where I think outlaw matches do provide this in an area where there is a good outlaw match that serves this role you know, a nice three, four stage indoor outlaw match with, you know, 10 or 20 round stages, run what you run kind of gear rules, still, you know, enforcing safety rules, uh, but just making it a little bit easier to manage a shorter stage and not, not pushing people as much to their limit so that new shooters can come out and get some experience on the timer before being expected to, you know, stand and deliver on a, on a 32 round field course. Um, I, I think that's a good thing. I think, I think we could use more of it. I think it would not be a bad idea if USPSA had some kind of entry level, you know, lower round count level zero match, you know, that's beginner friendly and doesn't take all day and has shorter stages. Same rules, just more of a constrained match. I, I think that would be cool, but I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, something else that I think is interesting is 
that I actually, at this point, I think PCC fits in better in USPSA than it does in 3-Gun. And I say that just because I, I, I don't shoot a lot of 3 I don't, I don't shoot any 3-Gun matches, and I don't talk to a ton of 3-Gunners, but just from what I've seen and, you know, looking at matches, I think in terms of giving a decent challenge without messing with the match, I think PCC fits pretty harmlessly into a USPSA match where if you want to support PCC at a three-gun match, either you're bringing the targets in closer or you have to have like alternate PCC targets or you end up watering down the sport, right? I don't actually think that USPSA has been or really will be anytime soon, just judging from where the trends are, really watered down or changed in any meaningful way to make the sport less less true to itself to accommodate PCCs. If anything, USPSA is becoming harder and more dickish to penalize PCCs with stuff like having more unloaded starts, which obviously I like because it makes the sport more like IPSEC, which obviously I like if you've listened to this podcast at all, right? Um, <laughs> I'm mostly joking, but you know what I mean? Like having more unloaded starts. Okay, that's fine. Like I don't care. Um, and match directors that throw it in there to try and screw PCC out of high overall. Like, come on. High overall, really? Like, who who cares? So, I, I actually I'm I'm glad PCC got added. I, I think it's good for the sport. I think I think the way they handle PCC classification is a nightmare. You know, giving guys GM cards because they so PCC just used the open hit factors straight up, and the open hit factors become completely irrelevant when you don't have a turn and draw on El Prez. You know, on PCC you can hundo an El Prez. If you can get your reload down, like it's very doable because there's no turn and draw and you just get to shave a second and a half off your stage that way. So um, I, I think that was a bad idea. I think even the PCC guys are starting to not really like how that turned out. Uh, I know a guy who was shooting a local club match and doesn't want he at the time he was saying he didn't want to shoot a fourth club match in PCC because he was going to get classified at a classification that was unrealistic and then it was going to bump up his other pistol classifications. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was to me the only part of PCC that, that I don't like. And I think that was just, uh, handled poorly. Last thing that doesn't really fit into a particular episode, but I, I've been wanting to mention is always video everything. That's, that is my mantra and it applies to stages. I don't apply it to practice as much anymore, but I do, I do apply it to stages. And the idea is no matter how short the stage, no matter how uninteresting you think it is, get video, get your phone, get your camera, whatever, get video of it because you never know when something interesting is going to happen on a stage. I've only ever had one squib on the clock at a match. And it was shortly after I started reloading it was at an IDPA match, and it was on a six-round stage. The stage was you started sitting in a chair with a, a rope in your hand. You pulled the rope. It started a swinger. The swinger went in front of three targets, and all you had to do was draw the gun and shoot each of the three targets twice while avoiding the swinger. And about halfway through, I had a round that I don't remember. Nobody noticed the sound of the squib. So I think we just thought that it was like a, a light strike or something. And I racked it out. But the next round wouldn't go into battery. And I didn't want to jam the gun into battery and, and shoot it. And so I was like, uh, I'm going to stop. And uh, sure enough, I had, uh, I'd had a squib. I can't tell you what it actually sounded like because I didn't get video of that stage. I thought, hmm, well, 
you know, it's only a six round stage. There isn't really that much to look at. It's kind of a boring stage. It's the end of the night. Eh, I'll skip getting video. And this was before I was recording with my hat cam too. And so I, I don't have video of that. Is that a huge crisis? No, you know, it doesn't really bother me, but it's, it's a good story. It's a good reminder of why, even when you think a stage isn't very important, it might be the one that you want to get on video. And if you, if you don't get video of it, you'll probably one day wish you had, you know, my, my mantra is always video everything, whether you're me and I'm looking for small improvements to make in my technique, or even if, especially if you're a brand new shooter, get video, you're going to see all kinds of stuff on your video that you don't even realize you're doing. No matter what your skill level is, get video of your stages. Like it's not narcissistic. It's not, it's not any of that. It's how you get better in the sport. And if you're worried about bothering other people early on in the day, just try and find somebody else on the squad and say, Hey, you know, do you want to, do you want to have a video of you? I can video you if you video me. And then you just got a buddy system throughout the day. And that way you're not imposing on other people. It's a quid pro quo, you know, you and, and someone else in your squad, you're, you're helping each other out. That's uh that's the way I, I would do it. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of short course. You can follow me on Facebook at Ben Barry shooting and Instagram at BS Barry. And my match videos are at youtube.com slash USPSA. You can email me at podcast at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.